Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to university, alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Karen Kurosaki Inglis, who's a professor of education in the School of Education and Human Development at the University of Virginia. She has a long-standing interest in how college environments affect students. Among her research interests are the impact of living learning communities and their impact on undergraduate student outcomes. In addition, she holds an appointment in the UVA Contemplative Sciences Center a research, as a research director of undergraduate initiatives, where she is the co-principal investigator of the Student Flourishing Initiative, a collaborative project with Penn State and the University of Wisconsin. In this podcast, Professor Kurosaki Inklis will talk with us about living learning communities. So thank you, Professor, for being with me today. Great. Good morning, Susan. Happy to be here. Great. So first, how did you get interested in studying living learning communities? So there's a long story to that, but I'll try to truncate it. Uh, When I was an undergraduate, I think that might have been the last thing I ever wanted to participate in. Uh, I was always really interested in college, and I didn't realize one could actually study that. But there are there are programs, the higher education program, which I currently am a faculty member in, that allows people to study the impact of college on students. Uh, and I was always more interested in the parts of the college experience that were not classroom based. So uh, things like friends that were made, residence hall life, uh, extracurricular activities, things like that. Because for the most part, if you think back to uh, what people often talk about fondly about their own time in college, it was hardly ever the classes. It was always the other things, the standing up to 3 a.m. talking with your friend in their room over pizza, stale pizza, usually. And, you know, what is that special sauce that comes into the college experience that makes it such a memorable time in person's lives that it has an impact for years and years afterwards? Uh, but at some point, I also realized, how can you harness then that out-of-class experience as a learning experience itself, right? Because learning doesn't just take place in the classroom, it takes place everywhere. So how can we actually use what's obviously a very powerful experience for most people as a learning opportunity? And about the time that I was in graduate school, there was a new um, term called Academic and Student Affairs Partnerships that really aimed to do just that, to marry the in-class and the out-of-class experience so that students could have a richer overall time in college. Um, I became really interested in those types of programs. Uh, those things include things like living learning communities, but it could also be things like conducting research with a, with a professor, study abroad, internships, things like that. Um, and so... Uh, in particular, living learning communities came on my radar because at the time when I was in graduate school at Michigan, I was asked to become the inaugural research director of university housing. And one of their first things they wanted me to study was their living learning communities. Uh, so I got study. I got started studying it because, frankly, I was required to <laughs> as part of my job. Uh, and as, as I mentioned, I was not interested in these things at all myself as an undergrad. I really didn't know very much about them. But in the process of doing that research for Michigan, I, I started to really appreciate what they are and the potential that they could be. Um, so after I finished my PhD, I went on to become a professor, and I continue to study living learning communities now, not just at Michigan, but across the country. And uh, it that stuff developed to be quite a large national study at over 50 universities and over 600 living learning communities. 
Um, and that was over 20 years ago, and I've been studying these programs ever since. Great. Interesting. So let's talk about it. So what are living learning communities and uh, where did the idea originate? Sure. Um, living learning communities, I guess the simplest definition would be academic programs based in college residence halls that seek to integrate the in-class and out-of-class experience. Another way to think of that is their intellectual and their social lives. Um, that's probably the, the simplest definition. I've, I have often told people when they don't seem to grasp the concept, think of Harry Potter and Hogwarts. Um, you know, Hogwarts is the school. They all take their classes, Defense Against the Dark Arts, Potions, blah, blah, blah. But they all live in houses, Gryffindor, Slytherin, Hufflepuff, and Ravenclaw. In those houses, it's a special community of students. And they ha- they share some sort of a kinship or a bond. You know, obviously, it's Harry Potter's because they got sorted by a hat. But, you know, in real world, it's, they have a, have a shared interest, an academic interest. And that's what really it is. That's what a living community, living learning community at its sort of essence is. Um, folks who are somewhat familiar with some of the things that undergrads might do might recognize popular variations like honors colleges that usually pair high achieving students and have them live together in the same residence hall and offer them sort of exclusive programming for high achieving students. Um, language houses are very popular. So say the French house where everybody there speaks French, um, watches French movies, has conversations with French professors, things like that. There are increasingly more discipline-based programs. So say one that uh, that has all engineering students in it or all business students in it or all education students in it. And they they do some things with their uh, residence hall that you know a business major would want to be interested in. So I actually toured one in another university that ran a Shark Tank-like um, competition in which they brought in the business school professor at the university and had students pitch their ideas in that uh, living learning community. And then there's the residential colleges, the ones that we have here at UVA that are probably the oldest variation of living learning communities. Uh, and you asked me how the idea got going. That's, that's usually what most people point to as the progenitor of living learning communities. And those are what the residential colleges are here in the U.S. Um, there's a long-standing debate over when these kinds of communities actually got started, but most people point to Oxford and Cambridge in about the 13th century. And the old British model of higher education was that uh, students were housed in, in houses, they were called. If you ever go to Oxford and Cambridge, you can see them, right? There's 20 little houses. They're all in quadrangles. Each of those houses is like its own separate little school. They all have their own library, their own dining hall, um, their own recreational area, usually their own lawns and quads. And some of them even have their own bars and things like that. And students <laughs> who live there live there for the entire time they're in college. And that is their university experience. Um, that's sort of the modern version. The older version from the 13th century was you would have a person called a tutor who would live with you. That, I guess, roughly translated to a modern day professor. And the tutor would teach you all of the, t- the subjects, English, mathematics, science, whatever, inside the little um, house. And that the tutor might only be having five to ten students total that they were charged with. Uh, and that was the higher education model in the UK back then. For centuries, that was the model that got imported to the United States in the colonies, the early colonies. So the earliest schools like Harvard, you know, William and Mary, places like that, they had that very same sort of setup as well. Um, but then in about the 19th century, higher education changed in this country. More and more people were going to college. There was this thing called the Murill Act, which expanded uh, higher education for 
people who needed advanced training in agriculture and mechanics. Um, it's called those called land grant colleges. Mm-hmm. Uh, the federal government basically gave states money to build large universities or to educate people in those types of um, vocations. But uh, that sort of small, you know, one tutor per five to 10 students model was not particularly effective or cost efficient in an expanding model. So the United States version of higher education moved into a more what's called the German model, where you have a scholar teaching a, a large number of students in a classroom. Um, that sounds a lot like what we do today. Yes, that's not a coincidence. We still use the German model of higher education today. Uh, but what that meant is that those tutors no longer lived in the residence halls or the houses alongside the students. Uh, instead, bigger buildings were starting to be built that were called dormitories, and that's where the students slept. Um, if you are familiar with French or Latin, you know the root of the word dorm is to sleep. And so the idea was, oh, we don't learn in the dormitory anyway. We just sleep. Uh, that's not where the learning happens. The learning happens with the scholars in the classrooms. And that that idea sort of started seeping into the, you know, the, the cultures of most universities at the time, so much so that by the early 20th century, there were some folks who were kind of thinking nostalgically back to the way that colonial colleges used to be run and thinking that was a better form of education than this sort of mass-produced model that we were starting to use in the early 20th century. One of the more famous uh, scholars was named John Dewey. Um, if you know Dewey Decimal System, same Dewey. And uh, he was really strongly advocating to return to residential college kinds of styles of learning and living. It did not catch on. <laughs> but the, what happened then in the latest the late 20th century is that was about the time when cost, college tuition and costs were just spiraling and skyrocketing out of control. Uh, and also the universities were just getting really big. This is this was the heyday of, you know, the Ohio State's at 50,000 undergrads and things like that. And so people were starting to ask, rightly so, you know, what exactly am I getting? for this amount of money for my son or daughter to be educated alongside, you know, alongside 50,000 students where the professor doesn't even know my child's name. And so it was about then that institutions responded by saying, okay, we're going to introduce, reintroduce living learning communities back into um, residential life on college campuses. It was thought to be that that would create a more intimate environment where students could have more interactions with each other and professors, and it would be a more vibrant sort of academic kind of life, not not all the way back to the sort of Oxbridge model, but closer to it than what we had in the in the late 1980s, 1990s. And that's when all you start seeing all these universities um, implementing living learning communities on their campus. It's kind of like, uh, you know, one person does it and the next thing the whole neighborhood does it too. <laughs> that's basically what's happening in higher ed because, you know, in, University A started living learning communities and University B, who's their p- competitive peer, says, oh my goodness, now I need to get living learning communities. And so they just, they proliferated like weeds in the 1980s and 1990s. As I mentioned, my own research has identified over 600 such communities and that's just at 50 universities. So we, we know there's way more than 600 living learning communities around the country. I will say, as we move into the 21st century, um, I think that the popularity of living learning communities is starting to wane a bit. Um, there's always something new and shiny around the corner. Will that, will that be our students all need to do community service or our students all need to do a, a global experience? That's the big one right now. And when that happens, you know, the the wide hot popularity of things like living learning communities just started to cool. But once you build a living learning community, it's not really easy to shut it down. So they still exist. They just don't occupy such a, 
a prominent spot in the discussion about the quality of undergraduate education and what living learning communities can bring to it. Um, so it's, it's an interesting sort of phenomenon of very old ideas grounded in very traditional higher education to try uh, being created to try to solve a very modern problem. <laughs> it's a weird juxtaposition that living learning communities occupy as a space. Interesting. Um, so can you describe what a typical living learning community sort of looks like and, sure. and how it's structured? So in the United States, I would say typical living learning communities about anywhere between 50 and 200 students who live in the entire residence hall. Um, it could be that at large universities in mostly residential colleges, you might have 400, 500, 600 students all living together in the same residence hall or the same sort of complex, residential complex. That hall has specific theme just for itself. So remember I was saying the French house or the engineering program. So they uh, would do programming that was designed specifically for those students around that theme. If it's the French house, they'll be doing French related and French culture related activities. If it's the engineering program, they might uh, do field trips to local engineering firms or um, design study groups around introductory calculus courses, things like that, that, that are germane to the students who are in, the, in that program. They're usually run by either a professor or a senior staff member. Um, sometimes that person would live with the students in the residence halls, kind of like the old tutors, but not always. Mm -hmm. And uh, that special programming can range from anything theme-related, like we just said, to uh, things that are pretty common, like offering special classes that only those students can take, doing common reads or book clubs, um, a, a prime example would be cultural outings that only those students would go on to say local museums or parks or things like that. They would typically bring in, they take advantage of the university and bring in outside speakers. So that could be other professors. It could be people who are visiting the university. Um, something I always like to do is latch on to a speaker who was in town for a different reason, but they, Hey, they're in Charlottesville. So let's ask them if they want to come have dinner with our students in our living learning community. Um, those are the kinds of special things that the only a smaller, more intimate community like a living learning community could do. And so that's what they're mostly like. But as I mentioned, because they, a lot of them were introduced because there were this, uh, we have to have them on our campus where we can't compete kind of attitude. The quality and the variation of living learning communities is vast. So it could be, yes, if you are fully running and functioning, you have a wonderful sort of balance between the academic and the social life in the community. For others, it could be, you know, a shoestring budget with nobody in charge. And it just happens to be a bunch of students who are thrown together who like cooking. <laughs> that could also be a living learning community. So what my research has shown is, yeah, depending on how much investment is put into it, that has a huge bearing on its impact on students. Um, and you can't really know. Uh, what a university is doing until you get, you know, you open up the hood and you take a look at what's actually happening inside the community. Great. So um, this leads to uh, the next question, which what's, what has your research found and uh, shown for outcomes? Sure. So remember, I, I mentioned that they were created in the late 20th century to fill a pretty tall order. Right. They were supposed to save undergraduate education <laughs> and explain why it is we need to pay so much for tuition and uh, can offer a quality education to thousands of undergrads at the same time. So uh, under those circumstances, I would say I don't believe any intervention, even a living learning community, could possibly fit that bill. And indeed, living learning communities don't. 
they do show to have very positive effects for students. Um, we, in my work, I have surveyed students that were both in living learning communities and not living learning communities. I've conducted focus groups with students and interviewed staff. I've done case studies of high performing communities across the country. And in general, broadly speaking, we tend to see the living learning students of higher grades. They're more likely to stay in college and they experience a smoother transition to college. Now, some would argue the reason why that is, is because the kind of student who chooses to live in that kind of community was probably already more academically inclined to begin with. Um, so well, naturally, they would have higher grades, better retention, and have smoother transition. That's that's true. And I don't know if it's necessarily even worthwhile to try to parse out that motivational piece as to why some students do better than others. But if nothing else, uh, living learning communities clearly provide some sort of a a conduit or a community in which like-minded students can come together. And when they do, they tend to flourish. But that being said, the differences that we tend to see between a living learning student and a non-living learning student on several outcomes like grades and retention, they're not huge. So we're not talking about, you know, a 20 point difference <laughs> in retention or a full grade point difference in grade point averages among students. It's a much smaller difference, more marginal. Uh, and then for some of the more um, intellectual um, items like cognitive development, appreciation of diversity, lifelong love of learning, uh, it, the effects are even slimmer. And so some would say then, all right, then what is the point of having these communities? You know, are they worth the investment? And I would say yes, because they still do provide a special environment for people. They do provide that bridge between the in-class and out-of-class life. Uh, and what we actually found is they they tend to be beneficial in ways that you wouldn't necessarily necessarily find um, would be their purpose. For example, the living learning students tend to binge drink less. Um, we don't really know why. We our assumption is it has something to do with the fact that that's a tighter knit community and students there don't feel the pressure to have to go out and consume a lot of alcohol because they've got an intact community of like minded peers. Um, but the other thing that living learning communities really do that is important are things like uh, enable more interaction with your professors, uh, with peers who are inter have the same sort of academic interests, which then facilitates students to have a stronger sense of belonging to the university because they, they have a stronger attachment. They feel like they matter more at the university. And what we found in research now even related to living learning communities is that sense of belonging is absolutely critical in terms of um, helping students to feel they have a place at the university, that they can be successful at the university, and they want to stay at the university. And so living learning communities may not be necessarily the way to, uh, say, increase intellectual development, but they do strongly facilitate sense of belonging. And that is, even though it's not necessarily um, what a, a, a psychological cognitive function in the brain, that feeling of belonging is incredibly important to student success. The living learning communities have been shown to be very strong facilitators of that. Great. Interesting. And finally, you decided to take your research one step further and led a living learning community here at UVA. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and your experience? Sure. Um, as I mentioned before, I've been studying living learning communities for over two decades. Five years ago here at UVA, there was an opportunity to actually lead a living learning community. Here they're called residential colleges. So after 20 years of studying these communities and telling others how they should run their communities, I thought it 
be important to see if I could put my money where my mouth is and see if I could run one myself. Um, we had just come out with this model called the best practices model in living learning communities about what we felt were the most important um, aspects or elements of living learning communities for them to be successful. And I wanted to see if I use my own best practices model in a residential college, so a real life experiment, so to speak, would it be effective? As I said, I did in my scholarship. So um, in 2018, I became the sixth principal of Hereford Residential College here at UVA. Principal is just a fancy term for faculty director. Hereford is 200 students, all four class years, so first, second, third, and fourth year, which makes it actually really unique because it's the only um, residential colleges in general, the only housing options here at UVA in which students from different class years can live together. Uh, all first-year students live together in first-year dorms at UVA. Second, third, fourth-year students could live anywhere around grounds. But um, the one place in which all four class years can live together are the residential colleges. And at Hereford, it's almost one quarter first year, one quarter second, one quarter third, and one quarter fourth year, which makes it a really interesting experience. Mm. Um, Hereford itself, for those who are unfamiliar, <laughs> which I was actually before I became principal, is on the extreme edge of grounds behind Scott Stadium on Observatory Hill. Um, so at once, it's kind of far away from the center of grounds. But on the other hand, it's also absolutely breathtakingly beautiful. Um, it's sylvan with trees and a wooded landscape. Uh, it's a gorgeous surrounding. And it's just there's a lot less foot traffic out there because it is the edge of grounds. And so it's very quiet, quiet, peaceful and serene. The students who live here love it for all, all those reasons. That it's, it's the 180 of central grounds. Not only is it natural and beautiful, but the buildings themselves are modern architectures, the only modern architecture on grounds. So everything about it is a complete 180 from the rest of UVA, which makes it really, really unique. Interesting. Yeah, it would have a beautiful view up there. <laughs> yes, it does. And in fact, the Hereford is modeled after the original um, lawn. So we have our own lawn. And instead of the rotunda, is it's where Runk Dining Hall sits. Runk is, is all glass. Um, and then the, the residence halls flank the sides, kind of like the pavilions flank the rotunda. Then the principal's house where I lived is at the top of the hill that overlooks the vista. So every day when I would walk out and look to my left, I would see this gorgeous view of the lawn with runk at the bottom and then the mountains in the back. It was just breathtaking. In fact, I still miss that view. I've, I've, we've now moved out because my term has ended and I still think about that view. I can see it in my mind every time I think about Hereford. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Kurosaki and Gless, for sharing this information about living learning communities and your research. Um, and thank you so much for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends, and families. Great. Well, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Great. And thank you for listening for upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find our podcasts on the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thanks again, and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.